Hello and welcome to another episode of In the Spotlight, the Cyclone podcast brought to you by the Science Policy Outreach Task Force at Northwestern University. We chat with graduate students and early career researchers about their work and why they do it. If you're a new listener, we're glad to have you. I highly recommend you check out our first season where we cover topics ranging from nuclear power to bee ecologies. If you're a returning listener, we're so excited to see you again. My name is Nicholas, and I'm the co-host of the show. Have you ever wondered what would happen if, if avocados went missing? Our current climate crisis could wipe out the species in the blink of an eye. Thankfully, scientists are figuring out strategies to help preserve these plants. Joining us today is PhD student Fiona Samuels. Fiona is a fifth-year PhD student at Colorado State University in the Department of Chemistry. It's great to have you, Fiona. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah. Thank you very much for being on the show. Um, so if you've listened to any of our episodes in the past, you know that the very first question that we always ask is, why science? What initially made you interested in, uh, in the whole topic? Yeah, I actually grew up around science. My mom has been a biology teacher for my entire life. Uh, so as a kid in elementary school, I would actually end up going to her high school labs after school and follow around all of the high school kids looking at the different ecosystems in Texas, which was really fun. Um, and then I decided in college that biology was not my jam and I went into chemistry. And then as a PhD student, I kind of have merged the two studying plant cells with chemistry techniques like vibrational microscopies. Okay. So you've had quite a long quite a long history with, uh, with science. Do you say ecosystems at first? Yeah. So we, it was ecosystem labs in Texas. So, uh, looking at the different plants and animals around rivers in the area that we were living in, which was fun. That's a very cool exposure to kind of have as a, as an elementary, elementary student. So you mentioned, I think a little bit about your, your PhD research of vibrational microscopy. Um, could you break down what you study and, and, and kind of what this technique is? So I look at where molecules go inside living plant cells uh, and relate that back to cryopreservation because the molecules we're looking at are called cryoprotectants and they are molecules that protect plant cells and animal cells and all cells from really extreme cold temperatures. Um, and this is important when we're cryopreserving materials because we cryopreserve them in liquid nitrogen, which is approximately negative 200 degrees Celsius or a little less than negative 300 degrees Fahrenheit. It's very cold. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so to protect those tissues and cells, we expose them to these molecules called cryoprotectants. And then after freezing them, we thaw them and the plant grows. Um, but we don't really know where the cryoprotectants go inside the cell. So I use a technique called coherent anti-Stokes Raman scattering microscopy, which is a vibrational microscopy that uses unique vibrations in molecules to actually take pictures of where those molecules are in a plant cell. Um, so I can't actually look through the microscope when we're taking these pictures because the the light that we're using could actually burn my eyes. <laughs> so I have to be looking at a computer screen for, uh, it's about 20 minutes per run. Um, so my research involves sitting in a dark room for a day, taking multiple 
runs of these plants being exposed to cryoprotectants. Okay. That sounds uh, very cool. I have a lot of questions. So great. So the first one is, is dealing with this cryopreservation, right? So you're saying extreme temperature swings, extreme colds, I'm assuming, with cryo being freezing. Um, and you're saying the plants survive being frozen to negative 200 something degrees? Celsius, yeah. So the only reason the plants survive being put into liquid nitrogen, which is negative 200 Celsius, uh, is because they have been exposed to these small molecules called cryoprotectants. Without the cryoprotectants, they would definitely die. <laughs> um, but it's not a whole plant that we're freezing. It's just tiny little pieces of the plant that can then regrow into a full plant. Okay. So seeds, for example? Not seeds, usually. And that's the whole point of cryopreservation. Um, with plant cryopreservation, we're targeting plants that can't be conserved through their seeds. So a lot of plants, you can just save their seeds for a long time and the seeds will regrow. Some plants like avocados, like you mentioned at the top, uh, if you try to save their seed, the seed will rot or grow into a plant, which is not really conserving the seed. So instead we take a tiny little piece of tissue from somewhere else on the plant, usually a shoot tip, which can then grow after being frozen, can then grow into a full plant. And there, so the, the cells that I work with um, are really, really low level cells. So they're de-differentiated cells, which means that they started out as some part of the plant, like a leaf, and then the leaf was injured. And then to, to heal the injury, the, the plant created cells that could grow into any part of the plant, similar to stem cells, but they didn't start out as stem cells. Um, so I use those cells, which are more like plant scabs, <laughs> uh, but other people use actual plant tissue that can grow into a whole plant. Okay. Very. And, and this preservation is all due to these molecules called cryoprotectants? Correct. So without the cryoprotectant, the cells or the tissues would die when we expose them to liquid nitrogen. So these cryoprotectants are naturally occurring in, in, you mentioned plants and animals as well. Sometimes. So the cryoprotectants that we use are not naturally occurring, uh, generally speaking. So we use something called dimethyl sulfoxide, which is just a molecule that we dump into the solution and then expose the plants to. Uh, and that is not something that you find in nature. Uh, right. But, yeah. DMSO. Yeah. DMSO. So. Other, so if you think of nature and cryoprotectants, uh, have you heard of like frozen frogs? I have not, but I would love to love to hear about them. So there's a, there's these frogs that live up in the Arctic or where it gets cold, I guess, and they get frozen every winter and then they come back to life in the spring. And so those frogs have some sort of naturally occurring cryoprotectant in them that allows them to survive that freezing and thawing process. Obviously that's a lot different from preserving or conserving plant tissue uh, in liquid nitrogen, but it is a, like a natural occurrence sort of thing where you do see cryoprotectants in nature. Usually they're sugars, 
Very cool. So Arctic frogs, is it, I'm assuming you mentioned it's not everywhere. So it's more like Arctic species, hibernating species, perhaps? Yeah. So it'll really depend on where the, the plants or animals live. Um, just because they will have to have evolved to survive those cold temperatures. The other classic example is tardigrades, water bears, microscopic organisms that can survive a whole plethora of different extreme conditions. Um, that was actually the inspiration for this project because we wondered why they survived and then ended up getting involved with the USDA, the United States Department of Agriculture, and working with plant cells instead. <laughs> it's quite quite a jump from the infamous water bears. I know. Still, still very cool. So, okay. So we have plants surviving these extreme temperatures due to these uh, highly specialized molecules only found in certain animals and certain plants. And you study them. Usually they're not found in animals and plants. Dimethyl sulfoxide is not going to be found in nature. Right. <laughs> right. Natural equivalents found in, in animals and plants. Um, and you study them through vibrations with a light that could burn your eyes out if you look at it. Um, yes. So could you could you give me like a, a very simplified overview of what vibrational microscopy is? Is it hmm. molecules vibrate and you identify them that way? Yes. So vibrational microscopy in, in molecules, atoms are connected through bonds and you can excite the bond in such a way that it actually scatters light back towards you or just in any direction. Um, so we use Raman microscopy, uh, and what we do is we actually have to change the atoms slightly so that they're slightly different from what are naturally occurring atoms. So if you think of a plant cell, there's a lot of water, which is H2O, and sugar, which has a lot of carbon and hydrogen and oxygen in it, um, and proteins, which have carbon and nitrogen and hydrogen. So we basically can't target anything that has just carbon, oxygen, and hydrogen, right? Uh, so instead, we change the, the atoms in our cryoprotectant of interest, so DMSO, for example, we change it. So instead of hydrogen, we have deuterium. And deuterium is just a heavier version of hydrogen. So now that carbon-deuterium bond has a different vibration than the carbon-hydrogen bonds that you would find in the plant cell. So in that way, we can actually say our uh, image the, the light that we're seeing on the image is from the carbon deuterium bond, not the plant cell. And because the carbon deuterium bond is on our cryoprotectant, we can say, okay, well, our cryoprotectant is inside the plant cell or our cryoprotectant is outside the plant cell or our cryoprotectant is in a specific place inside the plant cell. I see. So you change some you introduce a molecule that reacts to vibrations and produces light to find out where it is in the plant. Yes, so we, so we make sure the vibration that we're looking at is different than any vibration that we would find in the plant. Okay. And then we target that vibration with our microscope 
so that the image only shows where that vibration occurs. Very interesting. So does it matter where the cryopreservant is in, in a plant? So that is sort of the big question of my research, because for 30 years, we have been preserving plants. Um, if you look up plant cryopreservation in the news, last year, September 2020, was the first time they ever successfully cryopreserved an avocado. So over 30 years, they weren't able to cryopreserve an avocado. And the question is, well, why do the cryoprotectants work for some plants, but not other plants? So why can we preserve mint, for example, which is something that's easy to preserve, and not avocados um, until recently? <laughs> so that's, that's where my research really comes in, is saying, well, look, this cryoprotectant is in this spot in the cell versus this other cryoprotectant, like, for example, ethylene glycol, another molecule that we use to preserve cells, uh, is in maybe a different part of the cell. So you have to use them in conjunction to successfully conserve this plant. Okay, right. So the plant has to use various chemicals at various locations in order to preserve itself. So it's not preserving itself, it's us preserving it. Um, but yeah, so no one has ever looked at where these molecules go in the cells. So like the images that I'm taking are, uh, as far as we know, <laughs> uh, the first images of where cryoprotectants are going in plant cells, um, which is very exciting. But the broader implication which needs to be more is, is coming along in the research is like, what does this mean? What does it mean that the DMSO is here and the ethylene glycol is there? <laughs> right. So you're hoping that this research will allow us to preserve more kinds of plants like avocados, for instance? That's exactly right. So Basically, the methods have been optimized for a very specific set of plants. And when we look at our current climate crisis, there are a bunch of endangered species that can't be preserved with our current methods. Um, and because they're endangered, you're working with really small amounts of material, testing the methods that we already have. So by actually establishing where cryoprotectants are going in cells and then um, sort of determining what, what that means in terms of how successful the preservation is, the cryopreservation is, we hope that we can streamline the process so that we can basically optimize new methods for new species with less money and less plant material used up in the process. Right, I see. So you've obviously mentioned the current climate crisis. Um, is that kind of one of the big, I guess, policy pushes behind behind this this research? Is it is it a priority for us to preserve these plants? Yes, I think so. But I think that what, what people are probably more interested in with policy is the agricultural agriculturally relevant plants. So um, if you think of things like apples, for example, apples have already been cryopreserved. So that's 
not an issue right now, um, <laughs> but just as an example. Apples can't be saved with their seeds because if you plant an apple seed, you'll get a different type of apple. So if you have a really good eating apple, like Granny Smith, for example, one of my favorites, uh, and you take a seed of Granny Smith and you put it in the ground and you wait for a tree to grow, you might get a really terrible apple <laughs> that's disgusting. Uh, so instead, they cryopreserve pieces of the apple or pieces of the branches of the apple trees. Um, and that's really relevant for agriculture, which obviously the government is really interested in maintaining our <laughs> agriculture. Um, so yeah, I think that policy would probably be more interested in agricultural plants. But personally, I think that uh, biodiversity in the plant world is just as important as agricultural plants because that's how we keep things new and fresh and make sure we don't have lights that wipe everything off the face of the earth. Yeah, that's a, I would say that's a pretty good reason to, uh, to preserve biodiversity. Um, so we've touched a little bit on, on, on policy and people's shifting perception of agriculture versus biodiversity. Um, but what do you think is the public perception of, of your, of your research? crop preservation, plant crop preservation. Um, what, what could people, um, if, if you were to go to the, on, on the street and you're like, oh, I study uh, plant crop preservation, what, would, what do you think would be the first thing someone tells you? Whenever I say I study plant cryopreservation, people immediately jump to uh, being cryogenically frozen. And my uncle loves to say this. He, every time I see him, he asks me if he will be able to be a head in a jar and brought back to life in two decades. Uh, and that's his plan, but that is not at all what I do. Um, and actually that's it. part of the question about where these cryoprotectants go, which is what my, my research is. Uh, it's really important to understand that because most of the cryoprotectants are actually toxic so if a head was sitting in the cryoprotectant material for a really long time, the cells would all die. <laughs> so that's a challenge in cryopreservation. And that's why we use really, really tiny slices of plant material. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a very common thing of being like, oh, when are you going to freeze me? <laughs> Bring me back to life. That's not what I do. <laughs> That's understand. I mean, that's been popularized by by science fiction for the past I yeah. don't know, two, three, five decades. Um, I can see why people make the jump, but it's it's interesting that you mention um, obviously all these challenges and, and difficulties that people would have in chopping their head off and sticking it in a vat of cryopreservants. Um, you mentioned that that's the reason that you use very specific slices of of plants. Is that is there a reason as to why it's toxic for human head but not the slice of plant so it is toxic for the slice of plant but you don't have to put it in for as long of a time if you have a very very tiny slice so if you think of a thick piece of tissue uh your cryoprotectant will have to move through the entire piece of tissue so the the cells that are on the outside of the tissue will be exposed for a lot longer than the cells on the inside um that's actually the next step in my research, which is very exciting, is seeing how quickly 
those cryoprotectants actually get into the plants or the plant cells. Right. That makes that makes sense. Kind of like the penetrance of these mm-hmm. cryopreservants into. So, I mean, this is probably unrelated to, to your research because it's plant cryopreservation, but have people experimented with thin slices of, of like not human tissue, but animal tissue, cell cultures? So cryopreservation is actually something that's widely used in animal, in the animal world as well. And if you've ever heard of it in vitro fertilization, that's all cryopreservation. So the sperm and the eggs are usually frozen separately and then uh, they can be thawed and then mixed together and an embryo is formed and then the embryo can be frozen to later be implanted. Um, And that's in humans. A really cool thing that happened a few years ago is that uh, they successfully implanted a white rhino embryo in a female white rhino. And obviously white rhinos are endangered species. Um, And the baby came out beautifully. So it's like a beautiful little baby white rhino that was uh, born of cryopreservation. So cryopreservation is like pretty common in plants and animals. And I think that people just don't really realize that it's just as important to preserve and conserve plant material with cryopreservation as it is to conserve animal material with cryopreservation. Right. Makes sense. uh, (laughs) I think people, people's perception is very well, human, human oriented. And then by extension, I guess, animals. Obviously, this is a hugely important and very complex topic with a lot of challenges uh, to go before we can get to either full biodiversity preservation or sticking a human head in a vat and, and preserving it perfectly. But are there any fun things? Uh, like, what's a fun fact about, about your research that you love to, to kind of um, introduce people to? I guess it's not... There's a couple fun facts. So when I was first uh, learning about cryopreservation, I was reading papers in the animal world um, and there are nematodes that were frozen in permafrost for 40,000 years and then successfully revived, wiggling around. So little worms that survived 40,000 years, that blows my mind. Um, In terms of the importance of plant cryopreservation, there are a huge number of plants that I love that cannot be conserved with seeds. So chocolate, for example, cacao beans, those are those rot or they dry out and turn into chocolate if you try to save the seeds. Um, so that has to be cryopreserved. Avocados, obviously. Coffee, grapes, because grapes are often um, clones. So clonally propagated things can't be saved with seeds. Things that are seedless can't be saved with seeds and things that the seed rots or dries out if you try to keep it can't be saved. And so it's just really surprising to know that uh, you can't save these things with the seed. And so many people think of like seed banks as the savior of our plant biodiversity. And it's like, well, you're actually going to lose a huge amount of diversity if you rely on only banking seeds. Right. I mean, I think if you told people that your research would make sure that coffee stayed relevant in humans' lives for years to come, I think they'd get the point very quickly. 
Very, very cool. If someone were listening to this episode and they were to remember one thing and one thing only, what would you like them to remember? What is it that you want to put in the spotlight? I think it goes back to what I was just saying of uh, saving plant biodiversity is incredibly important for our future generations and the future of this planet. And cryopreservation is a really good way to do that. And um, interdisciplinary science. So, cause I'm a chemist, right? So you wouldn't think that I would be the person doing the cryopreservation and I'm not, but I'm helping the field. I hope that I'm helping the field um, using my research and my more chemistry knowledge uh, in order to advance cryopreservation. So I think that interdisciplinary work is vital to advancing all these fields um, and saving plants is just as important as saving animals. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Um, your research is super fascinating. Uh, and I hope that everyone listening felt the same way. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> Listeners, I also want to remind all of you to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. It really does make a difference in getting this podcast out to a wider audience. If you want to connect with us on social media, you can find this podcast on Twitter at, at The Spotlight. Uh, this podcast was brought to you by Northwestern University's Science Policy Outreach Task Force, or SPOT. And you can learn more about SPOT at our website, spot.northwestern.edu, or on Twitter at SpotForceNU. Finally, uh, a big shout out to Emily, my co-host and founder of the podcast. Uh, we wouldn't be where we are uh, without her hard work. Once again, thank you very much for listening, and we will see you in the next episode. <laughs>